All right. Well, good morning, Brookside. Hope you're having a good weekend. As Rob said, my name's, uh, my name's Brad Zook. I'm one of the youth pastors here at the church, and uh, it's my privilege to be able to work with, with Brookside's high school students. Um, been here at Brookside for 11 years and been full-time on staff for the past seven years, and I'm not normally up here, at least in this capacity, and so it's really an honor for me to be with you here this morning. Um, well, as you may know, this is week two of a two-week series we're in called To the Point that Tim Wiebe started last week. And uh, the topics for these, these two weeks aren't, aren't directly related, but what we're doing these two weeks is looking at, at two somewhat, somewhat famous Old Testament passages that are really standout passages that are, that are direct, that are to the point. And so Tim taught last week, if you missed it, he taught on Proverbs 4, 23, saying, above all else, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. And uh, as you just heard read, we're going to be looking at Micah 6 this morning. And today I'm going to be asking you these questions. What, what does a relationship with the Lord look like? What does a relationship with the Lord look like? And how do we know that we have a right relationship with the Lord? So if you haven't yet, I'm, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles if you have them, or your Bible apps if that's your method, and turn with me to the book of Micah chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, um, you can follow along as we, in a minute, start to go through this passage. Um, Micah's a minor prophet, one of those more difficult books to find maybe in your Bible. So if you're searching, you've gone too far if you get to the Z books of the Old Testament, Zephaniah and Zechariah, but it's to the right of Ezekiel. It's right after Jonah. Um, And if you've been a Christian for long, you know that that last verse that Rob read this morning, verse 8, is uh, is really a famous Old Testament verse, and uh, it's, um, it's very to the point, and we'll get there. Um, but this morning, we want to look, I want to look at all eight verses, the first eight verses of chapter six to see the, to see the context and to see, what it, to see what it shows us about this topic, about having a right relationship with the Lord. And so we'll see that this passage shows us four things. First of all, the foundation of a right relationship with the Lord. Secondly, our failed response to a relationship with the Lord. Thirdly, the revealed requirement, and finally, the way of redemption. So what's the foundation of a right relationship with the Lord? What's our failed response? What's the revealed requirement here? And finally, what's the way of redemption? Now, um, before I jump into these four, I want to give just a, just a very be- brief background into this prophet Micah and this book of the Bible that he wrote and what was going on in Jewish history at the time. So Micah was a prophet during the, the latter parts of the 8th century B.C., so seven to 800 years before Jesus Christ even comes on the scene. And he was prophesying at roughly the same times as Isaiah and Hosea. Don't know if these three individuals knew each other, if they hung out together. Maybe they did, probably not. But they were, they were prophets um, of Israel around the same time. And by this point in Jewish, in Jewish history, God's people were not faring well. In fact, they had not been faring well for quite some time. Um, 200 years, approximately 200 years before this book was written, the nation actually split into two kingdoms, to Israel in the north and Judah in the south as a result of their rebellion. The Israelites had turned away from the Lord their God, the Bible says, and they turned to worship other gods. And so eventually the kingdom split. And so here's Micah, and he's been given words from the Lord to deliver to God's people. And it's not always pretty. If you know prophetic language and the language of the prophets, it's not always pretty, pretty. Micah alternates between these messages of judgment and messages of salvation. 
and redemption. And we often get to see little glimmers of hope of the coming Messiah, of Jesus who would come seven to 800 years later. So we're going to dive in. First of all, the foundation. What's the foundation of a right relationship with the Lord? What's the foundation? Let's take a look at uh, chapter 6. And so right at the beginning, verses 1 and 2, we see the Lord calling all of creation, it seems, as witnesses to this, this case against his people. Some translations here even use the word indictment in the place of case. But there are several times, in fact, in the Hebrew, there are four times that a single word is used here. Um, it's translated case or accusation, but it's the Hebrew word reeve. Reeve. And here, at least, this word suggests conducting a legal procedure. Conducting a legal procedure, almost like they're, uh, they're in the courtroom. And so God is calling witnesses, uh, the hills, the mountains, the foundations of the earth, into the courtroom so he can make known these charges against Israel. But notice the first things that the Lord says. The first thing that the Lord says, if you look at verse 3, is not a list of their many sins, which is perhaps what you would expect. It's not even a stinging judgment, as we often see in the writings of the prophets. He starts with this. He says, my people, my people, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. Now, I want to take a time out here, just a second, to um, kind of take a peek at what God's people really were guilty of, to take a look at what the sins that they really were committing. Um, the Lord doesn't go into it here directly in chapter 6, but we, we see them come out at other places in the book. And so, for example, chapter 2 of Micah, verses 1 through 3, tell us that the people of God were oppressing the poor. They were oppressing the poor. Chapter 3 Verses 1 through 3 tell us how they were perverting justice through corrupt courts. And then in chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, tell us that they were engaging in fraudulent business practices. Fraudulent business practices. The leadership of the nation had become particularly wicked and corrupt. The land was filled with false prophets. The the priests were greedy. The rulers despised justice. In fact, probably the best summary of the spiritual condition of the leadership is found in chapter 3, verse 11. And you can glance over at that, or it'll be on the screens. It says, her leaders judge, but for a bribe. Her priests teach, but for a price. Her prophets tell fortunes for money. And yet they lean upon the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. But back in chapter 6, that's not where the Lord begins. Instead, he begins with my people. He says, I have chosen you. You are my people. When you knew nothing of me, I came to you. I've made a covenant with you. Don't forget that. You are my people. And yet, these two questions that the Lord asks in verse 3, what have I done? How have I burdened you? Assume that the Israelites believe that the Lord has wronged them somehow. And so the Lord essentially says, you think I'm putting a burden on you? Please explain yourself. Where do you see this? Answer me. It's as if the Lord, has, the Lord says, have you forgotten your past? Have you forgotten all of my redemptive grace? I have given you grace upon grace throughout your history. Do you see that? And so he goes into it. He gives three examples of this in verses 4 and 5. So first of all, he starts in, in verse 4 restating the covenant that he made with the Israelites at Mount Sinai. This verse is almost verbatim, in fact, the, um, the prelude to the, to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verse 2. It's the verse 
before the Lord goes into the Ten Commandments, which says this. It's almost exactly verse 4. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The Lord's saying, do you remember that? Do you remember the bondage you endured as slaves in Egypt? I redeemed you from that. He says, I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. That's the first example. Example two, in verse five, we read this. The Lord says again, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Now, some of you may know this story. Maybe if you've grown up in church, you know this story. You can read about it in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. Balak, the king of Moab, wanted to curse the Israelites. He was, he was fearful of them. They were kind of encroaching on his territory. They were his enemies. And so he goes and hires this, this sort of odd prophet named Balaam to put a curse on it. He asked Balaam to put a curse on the Israelites. And he asked him to do it three times. If, if you know this story, there's even a really great story. At one point, Balaam um, is kind of trying to shirk his responsibilities. And the Lord actually opens the mouth of Balaam's donkey. And he, the, his donkey speaks to him. But Balaam, instead of, instead of putting a curse on the Israelites, actually blesses them three times. And it's as if the Lord is again saying, remember. Remember how I've, how I've protected you from these, these evil nations, these other nations that wanted to wipe you out. He says, remind yourself always that I long to bless you and not curse you. And finally, the third example, second half of verse 5. Take a look at that. He writes, remember your journey from Shedem to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Now that probably doesn't ring a bell for you. You're like, Shedem and Gilgal? I didn't know what this was referring to until I started studying it. This, this was in fact their final step from wandering in the wilderness to their life in the promised land. Shedem was the Israelites' last campsite east of the Jordan River. In Gilgal, their first campsite after the miraculous crossing of the Jordan River, where again, just like at the Red Sea, they crossed this river on dry ground. And so again, the Lord says, do not forget, Israel, how I've walked with you, how I've protected you from every obstacle you've endured in your past. Dwell upon these righteous acts. Why, oh, why do you think I've burdened you? So the question is, what's the foundation of a right relationship with the Lord? What's the foundation? It's simply this, that our God saves us by his grace, that he chooses us to be his children. He doesn't wait until we've cleaned up our act or started obeying or gotten it right even three out of five times. Just like he says to the Israelites here, if you're a Christ follower here this morning, God says, look, you're mine. You are mine. That's the foundation you need to start with. He says, you're mine. He might be saying, look, we need to talk about some things. We both know that you have some things to work on. But do not forget that we're in a committed, eternal relationship. I am not going anywhere. Now, for those of you here this morning with, uh, with young kids still at home, you see this kind of thing play out a thousand times a year with your kids. Um, our daughter, Chloe, is four years old, going on 16, I might add. Um, not what I expected for a four-year-old. And when she's disciplined... She's often, you know, she'll be sitting in her room and maybe she's, she's crying. But always when we discipline her, we'll say, you know, Chloe, we, we need to discipline you. But look, mommy and daddy love you so much. We love you so much. We love you no matter what. You know that, right? There is nothing you could ever do to make us love you less. You are our little girl and nothing will change that, okay? God looks at us and says, do not forget 
the foundation of my relationship with you. It's by grace. So that's point one. Secondly, what's our failed response? What's our failed response? And so in verse 6, Micah responds here. However, it's as though he's speaking on behalf of the people. And so Micah says in verse 6 and 7, What shall I come before the Lord? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So here it's, a, it's as if the Israelites are saying, okay, you know what? The, the Lord's right. He, he has proven himself to us throughout our history. But how can we win his favor? Look, we, we know we have God's presence, they're saying, but what can we do to keep God's presence? Surely we can, we can do something. And so they come up with a plan and they say, essentially, Lord, certainly we can bargain with you. I mean, we're business people. We know how this works. Sure, we have fraudulent business practices, but certainly we can essentially pay you off with something. We can appease you. Look at all these things that we have. Thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil. Will that do it? And do you notice, too, how the, how the values of these sacrifices continue to escalate? It's like they're trying to buy God off. Now, uh, we would never do something like this today, would we? We don't approach God like this, right? I mean, sh- surely this is something just the Israelites were dumb enough to do. I mean, we're modern people, and he's, he's God after all. We, we don't, yes, we do, don't we? We do this all the time. I, I do it. It's like we, um, we go to God and say, Lord, I, I know I keep doing that. I know I keep doing that one thing. Or I know I need to do this a little more, but... God, look, look at all the time I've been giving you lately. I'm, I've been going to church a lot. Have, have you noticed how I've been serving my family? Have you noticed how often I've been praying? It's like we know how our legal system works here in the U.S., and we just tend to think, we just kind of slip into approaching God the same way. And so you get pulled over by that police officer, and you say, so officer, how do I, how do I get this ticket off my record? Oh, stop class. Oh, that's a good option. It just goes away? If I go to stop class? Okay. I'll do that. And so we go to God and say, God, if I give you, not out loud, of course, but inwardly, if I give you six months of church attendance, I mean regular, I mean faithful church attendance, plus at least three days a week in the Word, at least three days, we're, we're good then, right? That one thing that only you and I know about, I mean, that's, that's taken care of, right? Because look at all this. You see, on Micah's list of sacrifices, things start to get pretty ridiculous, But now keep in mind that in that culture, your wealth was primarily found in the size of your family and in your property and your land and animals. And so when Micah eventually mentions offering his firstborn, he's simply, that is simply representing the most precious or valuable thing that you could give to God. But here's the thing. Here's what Micah's saying. Here's here's Micah's point. He knows we can't bargain with God. Micah knows that we can't win God's favor. I do think this, this, these couple verses, he's using hyperbole here. He's, he's exaggerating. He knows, he knows we can't buy God off no matter the cost. And I think that's what he's trying to expose here. He's trying to expose the attitude that wrongly sees sacrifice, or here's a more modern phrase, that wrongly sees religious practices as a way to appease God or earn his favor rather than as an avenue for God to give grace and forgiveness to the repentant. I, uh, I love... I love to read, and rarely has a line in a book just floored me, just 
kind of laid me out. You ever had that where you almost have to put the book down that you're just like, wow, that, that was powerful. But I'll never forget four years ago now, sitting in my living room, reading in Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, these two short principles. They kind of contrast each other. That the gospel is this. The gospel is, I am accepted, therefore I obey. But our default mode, the default mode of the human heart, and might I add, the mode of merely external religion, is that just flip-flopped. It's this. We slip into, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Very, very similar, but profoundly different. In fact, two individuals can be operating under these two, these two assumptions, these two principles, and their lives will look very, very similar. Their words will be the same. Their actions will be the same. They could sit right next to each other for years and years in church. But you know what? They're operating on two profoundly different foundations for their relationship with the Lord. And one of them is true, and one of them leads to a life Eventually, the bad things happen and you, you shake your fist at God and say, you owed me. So, that's our failed response. And might I add too, that's why I think we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. That little phrase doesn't, it's not all-encompassing, but you can so subtly, every day I slip into the default mode. Which is why every day we need to go back to the Lord and say, God, remind me. Remind me that I'm accepted. But number three, the revealed requirement. The revealed requirement. So we get to the climax of the passage here, to this famous verse, verse 8, in which Micah responds to God's people and says, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is certainly a to-the-point passage. You can easily, you could easily claim that this is the way that God wants us to live our lives. In fact, you could easily make the case, I think, for this being almost a summary of the entire Ten Commandments. If not that, it is at the very least we see glimpses here of what Jesus says is the greatest and the second greatest commandment in Matthew 22, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. But let me walk backwards with you through this verse. To walk humbly with God means to know him intimately means to live our lives in relationship with him. If you've ever thought, if you're maybe new to church or you're back to church right now after a while being away, if you've ever thought, you know, you know, some people, especially these evangelical types, talk a lot about how you're supposed to have a personal relationship with the Lord. Personal relationship. What does that even mean? I didn't get that growing up. Is that even in the Bible anywhere? When I read the Bible, I just see lists of do's and don'ts. You know what? Here's one place that's it's pointed out directly at us. God wants us to walk humbly with him, to walk with him. That means to live with him. That means he wants to lead us, and he wants us to give attention to the things that he loves and desires. Well, that begs the question, doesn't it? Well, what does God love and desire? Well, according to this passage, the Lord desires for people to act justly and to love mercy. Now, at first glance, you may be thinking that these two things, justice and mercy, are at odds with each other. Like, Brad, aren't those, aren't those two things almost polar opposites? But the commentators would agree that as they're used in this verse, together in this verse, and even these words throughout the Old Testament, they're actually saying the same thing. So let me unpack both of these words a little bit and some of the Hebrew background. The term for mercy here is this Hebrew word hesed, hesed, which means uh, faithful love and unconditional grace. Some of your translations maybe even say 
um, to act justly or, or to do justice and to love kindness. But it means faithful love and unconditional grace. The word for justice here is this Hebrew word mishpat. Mishpat. This word mishpat is used more than 200 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. And its most basic meaning is to treat people equitably, to be fair, to give people, um, to both punish people or to give people their due, to give people their rights, regardless of their race or their socioeconomic status. I love this definition that one commentator gave for the word. He, he said this, mishpat, justice, is giving people what they are due, whether punishment or protection or care. So often I think in our Western world, when we think of justice, we primarily think of individual rights, and often it's, it's giving punishment, just the punishment to somebody who deserves it. But being just is also giving people the protection that they deserve, or the care that they deserve. And so here in this verse, mishpat justice refers to the emphasis, uh, puts the emphasis on the action, and hesed, mercy, puts the emphasis on the attitude behind the action. So to walk with God, what do we do? We must do justice out of an attitude of merciful love. But so, all right, let's get practical. Maybe. What does it mean to do justice? What does it mean to do justice? Well, repeatedly when this word mishpat is used in the Old Testament, it describes taking up the care and the cause of several, several classes of people, of widows and orphans, immigrants and the poor, those that would be among the most vulnerable in society, um, you've probably heard it stated before, but today this group would surely include um, not only orphans, but those in the foster care system, as well as many single parents, probably elderly people. So specifically, to do, to do justice means to both personally and corporately, as a body of Christ, meeting the needs of the handicapped, the elderly, the hungry, the single parents within our neighborhoods, it means mentoring kids and teenagers who are neglected. It means going to the places in our city where the fabric of society has broken down and together trying to repair it, helping to repair it. Sometimes I think for some of us, especially maybe in West Omaha, for me, it's maybe just getting out more, getting to know my neighbors better, not being so afraid to meet people, to find out their needs, to find out what they're struggling with. We can do justice in a lot of easy and practical ways. It means as a result of the gospel, you give of your time and your money and your power and your resources to those who are vulnerable and needy instead of keeping all those things for yourself. And in fact, according to the Bible, the justness of a society is evaluated by how it treats these neglected groups of people. But so it essentially says, um, if you don't do this, if you don't, sh- if you don't protect these people, the vulnerable, it's not simply a lack of mercy. It's, it's being unjust. It's a lack of justice. God loves and defends those, the Bible tells us, with the least economic and social power, and we should too. You know, maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Brad, you're telling me that if I don't, if I don't give of my time and money and resources and this sort of radical giving to, to people... You're telling me that I'm not just being uncharitable or unmerciful, I'm actually being unjust? Let me illustrate it this way. Think about the fact that in our city right now, and in cities all over our nation, and in all over the world for that matter, and in other places beyond cities, I'm sure, there's children who grow up, and simply due to the fact of the, the families 
that they were born into, and at least here in America, of the school systems that they are a part of, that by the time they reach young adulthood, 16, 17, 18 years, years old, they're still functionally illiterate. Functionally illiterate. They can't even read or write. And when you, re- when you reach that age, and you can't even read or write, you're kind of ruined for the marketplace. You're kind of ruined for any sort of economic and social flourishing. You're locked into poverty for the rest of your life. Why is that happening? It's happening to hundreds of kids in this city right now. Why is that happening? Well, there's, uh, there's the more liberal analysis and the more conservative analysis. The more liberal analysis probably says, well, that's happening because of unjust social structures. The more conservative analysis probably says, well, that's happening because of the breakdown of the family. But whatever the cause really is, no one says it's the kid's fault because it's not the kid's fault. We know it's not the kid's fault. No one says that an eight-year-old should say, you know what? I think I need to go to a different school district. Nobody blames the kid. Nobody says that a seven or eight-year-old should say to his parents, you know, mom and dad, you've been committing parental malpractice. You've been guilty of parental malpractice. You, you should have read to me. Nobody says that. And here's, here's a, it's a long sentence. I want to get this straight. The simple fact that a child born into my family has a 10 times greater chance for social and economic flourishing and just happiness in general than the kids who grow up in these neighborhoods is proof of the enormous unequal distribution of resources and opportunities in this world. And that is just one example of the injustices of this world that there is no easy solution to. And you know what? If I don't share with others the advantages that this unjust world has dealt me, then that itself is unjust. Isn't it? Isn't it? Do you want to have a right relationship with the Lord? Act justly. Do justice. Love mercy. Look at the the needy and the vulnerable around you. And my question for you this morning is, what does that look like for you? What does that look like for you? Even in your normal, everyday life, maybe here in West Omaha, not all of you are in West Omaha, Because let me mention this. Let me just say it doesn't necessarily mean just volunteering at some organization. Now, that is awesome, actually. I am all for that. And if you have the time to do that, and many of you do, and you do it faithfully, keep doing that. That's awesome. But don't let that be the only place your mind goes as far as doing this. Look at your everyday life, your routine. Who are the people living next to you? Who are your coworkers? Who are the the vulnerable that are a part of your everyday life that we just walk past and don't see? So that's the revealed requirement. Finally, to close point four, what's the way of redemption? What's the way of redemption? We, uh, we need to close with this because here's the thing. If I, if I maybe ended the sermon right now, many of you would only walk out feeling guilty. You probably would. And you know what? Guilt's not always wrong. In fact, sometimes it, it's really conviction and that's a good thing. Maybe you've been, so, you, you've been so accustomed to feeling guilty over the years that maybe you even kind of like it. You kind of beat yourself up and that maybe makes you feel a little closer to God somehow. But you know what I've realized over the years? I'm sure you have too. It's like guilt, guilt blows over, doesn't it? It doesn't actually change you. It maybe does for a few days or a few weeks, but it doesn't change. It doesn't do anything for the long haul, does it? It blows over. I've seen that time and time again. Eventually, 
You feel guilty about things, or what you once felt guilty about, you don't even feel guilty about anymore, you know what I'm saying? So put the guilt away. Put the guilt away. Guilt doesn't do it. But if that's the case, then what is the way for us to become men and women who have a right relationship with the Lord and who out of that act justly in love mercy? You know, it's interesting, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, Jesus is rebuking the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, and he says this, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Sounds kind of oddly familiar, doesn't it? Maybe Jesus knew Micah 6. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. What's Jesus doing here? He's holding up the same righteous standard for the Pharisees that, God's hold up, that God holds up for the Israelites in Micah 6. So God's righteous re- requirements, they never change, do they? But this poses a problem, doesn't it? It poses a problem for God's people. Why? Because they weren't. They weren't acting justly. They weren't loving mercy. And they were not walking humbly with their God. They were were walking quite proud with this God. So here's the thing. The Israelites couldn't do it. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law couldn't do it. And you know what? You and I can't do it either. At least not perfectly. Do you always love justice? Do you always do justice? Do you always love kindness and mercy? Do you always walk humbly? With God? Is it even possible to keep all these commandments? No, it's not. And God knows that it's not possible. Have you ever heard that before? That's the problem. The problem is that we can't be perfect. And even worse, because we've forsaken God, the penalty is death and separation from Him. But you know what? God knows that. And so, folks, this morning, the joy for you and for me is that we can't do it, but there was one who could. There was one who could, and he stood in our place. There was one who became our substitute, who was perfect. He was perfect, and yet he took our death penalty for us. For us, he took it for you. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, he says, God sent his own son, the only truly righteous one, into the world, he writes, in the likeness of sinful man, to, to be what? To be a sin offering. That Jesus was righteous, but he, he was a sin offering. Paul writes, and so he condemned the sin in us. How? In order that the righteous requirements, there's that word again, requirements, he condemned the sin in us so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. We have righteousness because of the cross. It's available to us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's as if everything that we've done or will do, all of our sin, Jesus took it on himself. And he took what we, what we deserved and we get what he deserved. And that's a really good deal. John Stott once said, In a world of injustice, I could never believe in God without the cross. He said, I can never believe in God without the cross because in a world of injustice, how could I believe in a God who is immune from it? And you know what? Only Christianity of all the religions in the world says God wasn't. 
Only Christianity says God wasn't immune from it. Only in Christianity do we see Jesus, the Son of God, hanging on a cross, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, he was forsaken. He was abandoned. He was cast out so that we could be brought in. He was was forsaken so that we could have a right relationship with the Lord today, so that we could be reconciled to the one and only holy God. God made a way for us. That's the way. And that's the way for us to do justice. Because it's quite possible to do a lot of good and to do a lot lot for the needy and the poor. But at some point, God might say to you, you know what, you weren't doing that for God. And you weren't doing that for the poor. You were doing that for you. You were doing that just to feel better about yourself. You weren't doing it for me. We need to see Jesus as supremely beautiful this morning. Jesus has paid it all for us. Now, all all to him we owe. So may we go and be people who do justice and who love mercy and who walk humbly with God this morning. Will you pray with me? Father, um, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this passage. Lord, it's not easy. God, I know this this kind of talk this morning, God, lands at a thousand different places for each one of us. Lord, I thank you for your righteous standard, God, that you ask us to go and be people who do justice, who love mercy, who seek the needs of the vulnerable. But God, I've failed at that. Oh God, I, I fail at that every day. And Lord, we all do, and the Israelites did, and Lord, that's kind of the point. Thank you, God, that you sent, you sent Jesus who did, who did it perfectly in our place, who lived a perfectly righteous life. And that is that's credited to us. And so Jesus takes our sin and we get his righteousness. Lord, may we see this morning that that is not just a good example, but Lord, that that alone, that gives us the capacity to be people who do justice in this world. That gives us a whole different motivation. God, may we not be people that are beat up by guilt because of this. And God, may we not be people that proudly go around thinking we're so good because of all that we do. Lord, may we do it out of a motivation of the cross. And so God, as we close this morning in this song, God, may we, I pray that we just proclaim your greatness. Thank you, God. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the blood of your son, Jesus. Thank you for being a just God who justifies freely through Jesus Christ. We pray this in your your name, Lord. Amen. Amen.